0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television.
1: Uh, Yesterday I think we we heard a number of uh, extraordinary presentations that raised a series of questions about the genealogy of the study of religion and where we as uh, students fit into the study of religion. Yesterday morning, Ed uh, Linenthal... Uh, tapped me on the shoulder and he said, you know, we were uh, not just lucky coming to UCSB, we were blessed. Uh, that's what the uh, the, the students um, uh, who have gone through the program and who are now at various points in their career um, think about this place. And I, and, and, and I really agree with it too, Ed. I, I, it's certainly, I've always thought um, that we all are blessed to be here. And it's not just simply Uh, a wonderful graduate experience. There's something that goes beyond it. And in part, um, we have always enjoyed um, the friendship and support of extraordinary scholars um, around the world. We heard yesterday in Jonathan's Jonathan's presentation about Giovedein and his presence here uh, and his influence um, upon the international study of religion and, of course, upon... um, uh, Walter Caps. Today we have two presentations and what I would like to do is to introduce each of the presenters separately and after they have presented we will have a uh, discussion with them. Is that alright? Um, and so our first presenter, I'll put it, no I'll make it, I'll do it this way. If you were to name the top 20 books in the study of religion Over the past 20 years, um, there would probably be a great deal of consensus that Robert Orsi's The Madonna of 115th Street, Faith and Community in Italian Harlem, which is now in its second edition, would be on everyone's list. Um, When I read it, I was just struck by how daring and revolutionary it was to do ethnography in the way that. Robert Orsi was doing it. Um, The next book that I read of Robert Orsi's was Thank You, St. Jude, uh, Women's Devotion to the Patron Saint of Hopeless Causes. And I think when I read it, I felt like I was in a hopeless situation. And so I was uh, buoyed by the fact that there was devotion to saints of ho- ho- hopeless causes, but that too was an extraordinary work, and it was very different than the uh, Madonna of 115th Street because it was historic. It was historiographical. It used archival materials and a whole series of new materials that had not been considered uh, in the study of uh, of religions, such as holy cards um, that were uh, related to, I believe. Uh, St. Jude. And then his uh, third book is an edited collection, uh, Gods of the City, Religion and the American Urban Landscape. And the introduction to that um, collection has to be one of the finest treatments of the place of religion in the urban environment that I've ever read. So yesterday I pointed out David and Ed's uh, introduction to their Um, a volume on um, uh, sacred space. Sorry, I just got caught with (laughs) it. It's Saturday morning. Um, So Robert Orsi's introduction to that collection is just a stunning, stunning piece, uh, especially about how the uh, biography is woven into um, the urban space. And uh, I've always been impressed with that. And I think that we heard several years ago a little bit of that when you were last here. And, in fact, one of the reasons why I wanted to invite Robert Orsi, and I'm so delighted that he accepted our invitation, was just to hear him again. Um, But also, we invited him because um, he was a president of the American Academy of Religion, Uh, at, I think, a very interesting point in the history of that professional society. And we wanted him uh, to speak about uh, Walter, perhaps, and uh, that society, but he was free to take it in any direction he wanted. And, of course, his um, most recent book um, is entitled Between Heaven and Earth, Religious Worlds uh, People Make and the Scholars Who Study Them. Uh, Robert Orsi is the Grace Craddock Nagel Chair in Catholic Studies at Northwestern University. Uh, And his presentation today, as you see in the program, is entitled The Democratic Impulse Walter Capp's Contribution to the Ethos and Ethics of Religious Studies. Please welcome Robert Orsi.
2: Thank you, Richard, for that very kind introduction and for your invitation to come back to Santa Barbara, where I have indeed come many times, but even apart from my physical presence here, I've been in conversation with almost all of you for many years, and it's, uh, it's really a, a privilege and a pleasure to be here. Also, particularly on this occasion, when I have felt as a visitor to a fabulous family reunion. and. Um, it's been a delight to participate in the joy and uh, of all of your memories and on all of your time together. So it really is lovely to be here. Uh, as Richard said, I had been originally tasked, as they say, to talk about um, religion uh, Walter's uh, impact on the AAR, but my feelings aren't particularly warm towards that association these days. Um, despite having been the president of it, because, of course, they have just undone the decision that I spent four years trying very hard to get done uh, to separate with the SBL uh, in an effort that Santa Santa Barbarians were very supportive of, and I appreciate the support from my friends at Santa Barbara for, uh, during that hard time, but now the AAR is going to go back and meet with the SBL. Besides, in my four years uh, at the AAR, I came to have a... a a mistrust, and this is a function of age, I think. The whole question of influence seems different to me these days than perhaps it once did. So I decided to approach the question in a a different way. Uh, So I want to begin with a moment when I think Walter Capps was obviously uncomfortable and unhappy. Um, I did not know Professor Capps, and there's a real nomenclature problem here, I have to say. I can't call him Walt or Walter because I didn't know him, and that feels inappropriate. I don't want to call him Caps because that seems really very distant, and I don't want to call him Professor Caps because that makes me sound like a Midwestern graduate student. <laughs> um, so, I think I'm just going to call him Caps, okay? But I do so with the deepest respect, uh, with the deepest respect. So I didn't know him, but I've discovered him in his writings to be a poised and graceful man whose confidence uh, about the nation and the world appears to have been grounded in the deepest spirit of hopefulness. Hope was a topic about which Walter Capps was particularly eloquent and learned. Reading or rereading him in preparation for this discussion, I found myself thinking of other public men of his generation, among them William Sloan Coffin, Bill Moyers, Howard Thurman, who found a way to integrate a deep identification with the American project with the most trenchant criticism of it, uh, a political and existential position that would become all but impossible after the divisiveness of the 1970s and the 1980s. But a sentiment other than hope and confidence is immediately uh, evident in the very opening sentences of his 1990 book on the new religious right, piety, patriotism, and politics, which we've heard a lot about in the last uh, day. Um, in the book's preface, before his proper pagination begins, even as if he could not wait to get this off his chest, New Right Religion Cap, caps writes is a reluctant and unforgiving subject. That's his words. A reluctant and unforgiving subject for a scholar in religious studies. By training and temperament, he explains, scholars of religion approach, again in his words, all fundamentalisms as probable exhibits of the sort of mental rigidity compelling human nature is obliged to overcome. The discipline's vocabulary will categorize such religious expressions as the, uh, as the evangelical right as dogmatic militancy, capable of working, like his words, pathological mischief on its devotees. I did not undertake this project, Caps confesses, out of deep personal empathy for the subject. Rather, he was piqued by what he saw as the contradiction between Quote, the real needs and challenges of our time, about which, of course, he had had plenty to say in his earlier writings, and what the religious right had to offer its adherents. So it was that contradiction, in particular, that drew him. The normative impulse and sovereign condescension of 1960s and 1970s religious studies, when caps came of age in the field, could not be clearer. The development of religious studies as a discipline within American higher education is one thread of the much broader history of the emergence of religion as the object of critical inquiry. This trajectory begins in early modernity and extends across the globe in a vast and complicated, as we saw yesterday with Tomoko's presentation, a vast and complicated comparative enterprise involving a multifarious cast of characters that included missionaries, colonizers, insurgents, monks, Oxford dons, and squalid adventurers. Um, In its history in the United States, religious studies developed very much within the ambit of public Protestantism, which gave to the nascent discipline the civic responsibility of identifying which expressions of faith were appropriate for a modern liberal capitalist nation, on the one hand, and doing what it could to maintain boundaries against the others, on the other hand. This mission was informed by traditions of scholarship that bore the marks of Catholic Protestant hostilities, and that placed liberal Protestant forms of modern religious life at the summit of a developmental hierarchy held to be universally true, both for persons and for nations. All this is now well known. Capps' academic career came at the last moment when the field's liberal Protestant assumptions were going largely unchallenged, and this social and intellectual inheritance may be heard in the discomfort of the opening sentences of his early study of the religious right. The arrival onto the national scene of conservative evangelicalism in the 1970s disrupted some of the most cherished assumptions and deeply held values of liberal religious scholarship. Particularly disconcerting was the Christian right's emphasis on authority and obedience in the Christian life, its literalist biblical hermeneutics, and above all, its transgression of the separation of church and state that in the early 20th century was really the separation of conservative religions from a public square that was otherwise open to liberal religious participation, as new-right uh, Christians well knew. My advisor, uh, Sidney Olstrom at Yale, uh, could not talk about he was the most ironic and open of men, and he just could not talk about Jerry Falwell or any of this without dripping sarcasm and contempt. He had this way of describing how Billy Graham's Bible hung down on either side of his hand as if it was some kind of reptile, um, that, that Graham was holding out like this. And I mean, it's a, it was, you know, it's a striking image that has forever shaped... The rise of the new Christian right caught scholars of religion by surprise. They had been confident that such religious expressions were anachronistic in the modern world and thus fated to disappear. As Caps recalls of his own first glimpse of Jerry Falwell on television in 1978, in his words, few viewers would have given any serious consideration to the prospect that a new religious right or anything Jerry Falwell was sponsoring would ever become a potent religious or political force within the country people meaning the people in his circle who thought about things the way he did would have been shocked cap says by such a prospect 1978 was also the year of course that the discipline of religious studies proved itself woefully unprepared for thinking about the mass suicide at Jonestown until that we were helped in this by both jonathan smith and david so Capsus' discomfort, and now here I want to introduce a German technical German word, Ahungloskeit, which means cluelessness, a very important word in the study of religion. So, but I, I thought putting it in German would give it a certain extra cachet than just cluelessness. So Capsus' discomfort and Ahunglosigkeit, which means cluelessness, uh, was very widely shared in the field. Had he stopped here, Capps would have been solidly, if predictably, a scholar of religion of his time. But he did not stop here, as we know, and Capps' contribution to the academic study of religion becomes apparent in the decisions he makes at this uncomfortable and unforeseen juncture. He pushes ahead to say that as he engaged men and women involved in the conservative religious movement, he came to recognize, quote, came to recognize just how easy it is to dismiss religious right theology even before trying to, even before considering it or trying to comprehend it. He came to understand that there were discernible reasons for the resurgence of conservative religion in the United States at this time. I was struck by that. Ed, you said that you had found the positive of value, the wish that liberal progressives could articulate the kind of contract with America. Well, I, mean, that note really sounds in, this, in his eventual appraisal of the religious right. Um, so, where am I? He discernible reasons of the United States, meaning that it was not, as others were confidently imagining, the atavistic eruption of an irrational and dismissible religious mentality. the notion of coming to understanding the, process, the processes by means of which knowledge of religion is developed is a technical theo- theoretical concept in Caps's work, a subject I will return to later. Thus, he says, quote, I was caught in an unexpected place. To acknowledge the possibility that there were reasons for this phenomenon, he goes on to say, is inconsistent with the disposition, the wider disposition he saw in the field, to dismiss the matter out of hand, in other words. He realized, indeed, that thinking and writing about the new religious right would require a particular way of doing religious studies. In his book on the monastic impulse in 1983, Capps writes movingly of his fascination with monks' eyes. "'I've studied their eyes,' he tells readers. "'I've been aware of eyes during the long night vigils. "'I've noticed monks looking at each other, "'communicating through a highly sophisticated "'and practiced visual sign language.'" This leads him to recall a sentence from the Talmud. We've heard Sarah also quote, we do not see things as they are, we see things as we are, which brings Caps in turn to the question, do monks see the same world as the rest of us, or are theirs different eyes? The deepest ground of this meditation on eyes and seeing is Caps' curiosity about the possibility of a heightened clarity of vision, an especially acute way of seeing. He is fascinated by the notion that monks train themselves by means of a focused inner discipline to see more clearly and deeply into the self and the world as these are, into what Thomas Merton called thatness in his Asian journal, a work Caps read carefully and that is likewise preoccupied with questions of seeing and knowing. I suspect that monks' eyes have been tutored in the same way that ears have been trained, Caps writes, Meaning they are sensitized to special features within the monastic setting, and here i 'm still quoting the senses of sight and hearing are made more acute. Caps is imagining here a certain quality of disciplined attentiveness, disciplined attentiveness. He returns to this matter of eyes just at the point in his book on the new religious rite that he identifies or confesses is an unfamiliar place to him, quoting, uh, quoting Merton just at that point on the difficulty of seeing the eye through which one sees this means in caps's words now one experiences extreme difficulty trying to see or know the eye by which one sees interpretation in religion then especially of religious phenomena the scholar has no affinity for at least if he or she uh, uh, no affinity for at least if he or she is not actually disdainful of it requires a double movement, in other words. Here, in a long quotation, relatively long quotation, is Caps's conclusion about method. What one finds appropriate to say, write, or judge about the new religious right is also an index into how one sees and how one makes sense. What one finds to criticize about the movement lends expression, at least by apposition, to what one cherishes and prizes. What one finds worthy of praise within the movement is also indicative of where one stands. Whatever analysis is offered tells one something about the subject, perhaps, as well as something about the inquirer. For the inquirer, such analytical work is also a kind of hermeneutical self-examination. These sentences add another dimension to the challenge of disciplined attentiveness to the thatness of the real. What his engagement with conservative Christian evangelicalism required of him, Caps realized, was disciplined attentiveness to the other, but also to the self who is attending to the other the scholar of religion is not given a free pass in this way of knowing the result is a book in which not only is Capps present as interlocutor and interpreter he is there as an open and honest and resolutely self-aware conversation partner with men and women whom he never dismisses Um, he talks to them but he never condescends to them he thinks along with the people he talks to as they reflect on their world prompted by their questions questions and and reflection ends by his. The knowledge that comes of this is created in and through relationships among equals who are present and transparent to each other. This is the profoundly egalitarian and democratic spirit of Cap's scholarship. Theories of religion, as these developed in Western modernity and uh, were premised on a hierarchy, as noticed earlier, of higher and lower forms of religious expression and practice as a catholic i, I was always struck by the fact that in that famous stages of faith in which one moves through a sequence of normative stages of faith that catholics came at like stage it begins with one the primitives and then it goes to primitive ways of being in the world and then it goes to finally six which is roughly unitarianism and then in between catholics come at about two point five on the scale <laughs> And if you're really good, you can can grow past Catholicism, in other words. You can grow past it. If you hang in there um, and do some things, meditate a little bit, maybe visit a hot tub, you can get past (laughs) Catholicism. In some theoretical traditions in the study of religion, uh, those associated with northern European phenomenology, for example, such differences were taken as developmentally transient. In time, they would become like us. In others, and here I think of the interminable debates about the rationality of primitives, about what they meant when they told credulous missionaries and anthropologists that their ancestors were parrots, um, difference was reified and rendered essential. Both traditions produce great and flawed research on religion and, and religions. But as a result of their uncertainty, at least, about the rationality, psychology, and ethics of religious others, the, se- the sense that these others, primitives, Catholics, European workers, conservative evangelicals, and so on, the sense that these religious others were inferior took hold in the discipline. And at times, this shaded into the suspicion, even the certainty, that these religious others were not quite human in the same way as the rest of us, or certainly not as human as scholars and theorists of religion. The existential and ethical component to this development, developmental scheme was the scholarly attitude of superior knowingness towards the subjects of research and religion. Knowingness is a useful term that I borrow from philosopher and psychological theorist Jonathan Lear, who defines knowingness as the demand to already know, what we set out to learn, as if, as though there is simply too much anxiety involved in simply asking a question and waiting for the world to answer, as if there were too much anxiety in simply asking a question and waiting for the world to answer. This determination to know, Lear says, can be used to obscure any possibility of finding out. Knowing this is the other side of cluelessness in academia. In Lear's analytical terms, knowingness is produced as a defense against the anxiety of not knowing. It guards against the, horror of, the terror of learning something that does not secure the reality of the world as it, as it is already known. As such, it is a sickness and a symptom. It is precisely this posture of knowingness that Caps consciously abandons in the opening pages of the New Religious Rite, and he does so explicitly to open the way to discovery he cautions those readers who are coming to the book in search of sound conclusions quickly and confidently arrived at in his words that they will be disappointed translated into Lear's language what Capps is warning against are quick and neurotic conclusions that would serve to endorse what these readers already know of the world generally and of Christian conservatives in particular following this cautionary abjuration Capps goes on to say that he developed his alternative approach to research and writing about the Christian right to reflect the way in which the subject is encountered now these are his words to reflect the way in which the subject is encountered on its own terms, on its own ground nurtured by its own climate of opinion and conviction caps his confidence in facing the anxiety of not knowing and his willingness to approach religious others as recognizable meaning as persons like himself even when he profoundly disagrees with them are what make it possible for him to stand in this suspensive place of discovery. I will return to the phrase, persons like himself, at the end of this discussion. What Capps came to know by this approach is in more contrast with another, more recent study of the Christian right, Susan Friend Harding's uh, widely celebrated book of Jerry Falwell, Fundamentalist Language and Politics. Harding also makes the trip down to Lynchburg, just as uh, Capps did, Although apart from one conversation she describes early in the book, uh, she never explicitly draws on the fieldwork that she says she does, and in, in I believe in the churches down there. The rationale for this methodological choice, no ethnographic reporting, no ethnographic conversations uh, at all, the reason, the theoretical reason for that choice is the claim, is her claim that fundamentalism is about the power of conservative Christian discourse and language to absorb and recreate the realities of those who hear it, literally to remake them as people. This language, generated in what Harding calls Falwell's factory of words, quote, produces fundamentalists, produces fundamentalists and other true Bible believers. Indeed, so potent is this language over others, regardless of their conscious intentions, That without wanting or meaning to, Harding herself becomes inhabited, in her words, by the fundamental Baptist tongue I was investigating. Recounting her conversations with Lynchburg pastor Melvin Campbell, Harding describes how she was made into, quote, the subject of a whole range of presuppositions, posited in such a way that that they were difficult to resist. Campbell was refashioning her. Uh, Here is uh, Harding's account of what becomes of her in the presence of this ordained evangelical mesmerist. Campbell's language emptied my life, my personality, and erased my past. I was primarily distinguished by what I lacked, given but my lacking and by what I needed. I stood for absence, for void, yet I was aware of something more, something missing, something hidden, unseen. All this was accomplished in me, by implication and presupposition, not by direct argument. My consent was not sought. I was implicated already, enlisted as a collaborator in my own metamorphosis. Could you imagine Walter Cass writing sentences like that? Harding powerfully enacts here the terror of having one's rational intellectual world overtaken by the religious other, which is one of her points. This is the future, she warns, at the end of her book. The encounter with fundamentalists plays out as a war of the worlds in which aliens take over our minds. I cannot imagine a more satisfying free song of predictable horror for academic readers, who surely finished the book even more frightened of what they were frightened of when they began it, which is one of the conditions of knowing this. Maybe fundamentalist language is so powerful it'll take us all over. Compare this now with Capsa's tempered assessment of Jerry Falwell. Quote, judged in light of the roles he had assumed and acquired in the National Corridors of Power, Falwell is a study in vulnerability. I have to say, I was really moved and struck by this. As I read Capps and Harding in relationship to each other, I was really moved by it. And uh, Capps recognizes Falwell's talents as a mediator, a role for which he says the preacher is remarkably suited by temperament, but he also sees how this capacity has brought Falwell to some very trying personal and political issues. Passes. Discussing Falwell's involvement in the PTL scandal, for instance, forever immortalized in the national consciousness by the ludicrous image of the fully clothed preacher shooting sternly down the water slide at the Baker's amusement park, his arms locked across his chest. You all know that image of Jerry Falwell like this, shooting down the water slide. I mean, it made him look totally ridiculous and stupid. Um Caps writes of the PTL scandal, in this circumstance, as in all of the others, he found himself in a marginal position, unable to dictate the terms of the desired mediation. From the perspective Caps' analysis opens up, Falwell's watery ride is emblematic of the preacher's entanglement in contingencies and contradictions, not of his victory over hapless Pentecostal rivals. The leaders and ordinary people of Lynchburg's congregations likewise emerge in the new religious right as thinking persons trying to figure out political and personal circumstances in terms of their theology not as humanoid pods who have been scoured clean and then filled up by their pastor's speech Caps's emphasis on or his discovery of the ambiguities and uncertainties of Lynchburg's conservative evangelicals working on their world with their theology in their hands provides a richer and more dynamic picture of this religious environment in turn, this generates more compelling questions for further social and religious theoretical inquiry, which, after all, is one of the major reasons for our work. We're not supposed to just console each other or frighten each other or convince each other that what we are frightened of is what's frightening. We're actually supposed to be producing knowledge. Um, the, the point, uh, uh, after caps, we may be stimulated to ask what Falwell had to do, for example, to maintain his religious authority amid the persistent questioning and ambivalence, or just the snarly contrariness of his colleagues and followers, which raises the further possibility that Falwell's ministry was shaped by forces beyond his control, rather than his being the voice and the text that produced his following. Or we might inquire into the kinds of civic, political, and existential contexts that contribute to stifle questioning and to create an impulse of submissiveness to authority among conservative evangelicals, Uh, for some particular period of time and in some places, once we have acknowledged that irrational compliance with authority is not necessarily a fundamental characteristic of this culture. In other words, we could start asking questions now. But the fact is that such questions demand that we think about our own lives too, about how we are bound to fundamentalists, fundamentalists, and to entertain the prospect that as citizens of this political and economic environment, that is, as it has developed over the past 20 years, we may not be so unlike them. This is a line of inquiry that CAPS welcomed, but that provokes horror in others. The opening to ongoing inquiry that is also a resistance to premature closure is one of the hallmarks of Capps' work. So too is the insistence that the scholar's own life, his or, hon- his or her own deepest assumptions and values, are on the line in the processes of understanding. Caps's books, from the first to the last, are always invitations to further research and to greater intellectual honesty and clarity. These are not qualities that he developed in the 1990s when faced with the unexpected appearance of conservative Christianity in the public square. In his essay on the interpretation of new religions and religious studies in 1978, to cite an earlier expression of his thinking, he maintains that the abundant innovation of new religious forms in the late 20th century required innovative, dynamic, and confident scholarly methods open to the protean and to the emergent. Religious studies need not always or only study, in his words, what already happened, uh, he says. What, um, so what accounts for this generative spirit of theoretical inquiry? This is where I want to go now. And then I'll conclude. What accounts for this generative spirit of theoretical inquiry? Um, you know, some of you know that uh, that I have had a a, a public conversation with a, with another scholar of religion whose work is widely, uh, I think, uh, it's circulating widely in the field these days. And in a, a quote that of his work that particularly struck me he uses the phrase fair game to talk about religious others. He says, religious others are fair game for our theorizing. Fair game for our theorizing. Um, so the question then is, well, I'll get to this in a second. Why did Caps have this other spirit? There are surely many answers to this, but I was struck as I read through Caps's work as it developed over time by the way, his view of the unfinished and perhaps never-to-be-finished work of understanding the Vietnam War paralleled his more general theoretical orientation and epistemology. The war in Southeast Asia, he wrote in his introduction to the 1990 Vietnam reader, is an enduring agony. There are still unfolding moral, psychological, and physical consequences to the war. The war's dirty work involved different groups of people whose experiences and memories Caps points out do not add up to a coherent picture of what happened and why. Moreover, these persons have changed in the years since the war, and so have their memories and evaluations of their experiences, as we heard Richard speak so eloquently about yesterday. The Vietnam War, in other words, is not fixed in the past as inert history, where its meanings can be figured out once and for all. Rather, its meanings are elusive and inexhaustible. This entails, Cap's writes, learning other processes and pathways by which meaning can be discovered and significance can be attributed. So he brought together, as we know, Army nurses, Vietnamese soldiers, North and South, African American and Native American combatants, resistors and politicians, inviting them, quote, to explore previously unexplored dimensions of their experience. Understanding the war requires such a wide range of human sensibilities and even then when they are through with the work of remembering and reassessing, the meanings of the war will remain unfixed and endlessly emergent. And comprehension, uh, Caps says, will not be final. Now, to say that the Vietnam War, in its unending agony, uh, is a source for Capps' theoretical orientation to culture and religion may seem like too dark and tortured uh, grounds for a man's theoretical orientation that was resolutely compassionate and open, and in the spirit of the counterculture, hopeful and expansive and so forth. But this is what I see. Among the qualities I came to admire in Capps' work was his direct engagement with the urgent issues and events in the country as an academic, and the way that his particular times inflected his scholarship on religion and religions, not only in terms of content, but of method, too he was not always a hard-nosed realist of course occasionally he succumbed to the romanticism of his earlier times that blissful nineteen sixties dawn which seemed to have glowed all the brighter in california and to have lasted longer here when Calves had the good fortune of being alive and young uh, and in santa barbara it is perplexing he writes in his book on the monastic life that something so powerful and fruitative as the sixties counterculture would become so short-lived, which had me wondering if Caps was willing himself here to ignore the factors that made for the era's brevity its violence, hate, and corruption. What if Caps had seen the 60s from the gritty, nasty streets of the East Village or from a working-class neighborhood under siege by the uncontrollable machine of urban renewal uh, rather than from, the, from California? But then again, he always gets hold of himself He read Christopher Lash and Richard Sennett and David Riesman, as well as Theodore Roszak and Charles Reich, which led him to urge the monastic practice of the disciplined self in community as the antidote to the self-indulgent individualism of the age of Aquarius. But the touchstone of his clear-sightedness seems to have been the war in Southeast Asia. The trajectory of Cap's work led me to reflect on the fact that a country's being at war becomes its pervasive reality, intruding upon and reframing everything else, driving the simplest questions with a tremendous moral urgency and demanding new ways of thinking and understanding. And I think this poses some uh, very powerful questions for academia in our own time because, after all, we are a nation at war. Caps ends his chapter on the conservative uh, Christian theologian Francis Schaeffer with a striking ethical and political reflection, which is where I will end too now, so striking indeed that it is a little startling to come upon it. He is making the case that Schaeffer has created in his theology a modern version of Gnosticism by offering only one solution, the God of conservative Christians, to a world that he finds, that Schaeffer finds corrupt and fallen. This arrogant dualism offends Caps. He has been true to his method in the chapter. Schaefer's ideas are richly developed. In fact, it's a great chapter on Schaefer. But he has not eclipsed himself. As we were saying yesterday, to take uh, to do the kind of work that David does it doesn't mean you or uh, uh, Ed does. It doesn't mean you are going to join Jonestown. It doesn't mean that you're going to drink the Kool-Aid. Um, so Caps doesn't drink the Kool-Aid at the end of the New Religious Right book. Uh, he's been very fair. Schaeffer's ideas are richly developed, but he has not eclipsed himself, and now he wants to address Schaeffer's putatively prophetic criticism of the modern world. Who is a religious critic? How ought a religious critic speak so that others may recognize him or her as an authentic voice? Capps paraphrases the ancient theologian Irenaeus. Quote, that which deserves to be improved and perhaps needs to be transformed must first be acknowledged and always must be affirmed. That which deserves to be improved and perhaps needs to be transformed must first be acknowledged and must always be affirmed. Irenaeus offered this uh, as a testament of Christian faith. Schaeffer's criticism, on the other hand, is bleak and unproductive. It offers no hope, only escape into the community of the saved. Then Caps adds a coda to this. Quote, when the nation's founding fathers described the workings of democracy, they knew, themselves to be de- they knew themselves to be declaring that this world, too, is of God. What is Cap saying here about democracy? I think he is describing what his friend and, Ro- and colleague Robert Bella would have called a democratic habit of the heart, which Capps saw as necessary, not only for the citizen, but for the scholar, too. This habit of the heart is characterized, first of all, by acknowledgement, which I take to mean the recognition of the way the world is and the self in relation to it, and second, by affirmation, which we can, now, which we can see by now does not mean acceptance for caps or endorsement, but rather an egalitarian sensibility that takes the other as the equal of oneself. Caps is summarizing his scholarly method here, too, acknowledgment and affirmation as the preconditions for knowledge." The question that I struggled with as I read or reread Cap's work for this discussion was: How is a scholar's influence on his or her field evident? How can we substantiate any claims that we make in this regard? In lists of citations, uh, in names of students—certainly, in this case, students is a is a good piece of evidence. How often his or her name comes up at scholarly meetings? whether or not his or her books remain in print, what is the evidence? What is the evidence of influence? It was Caps's writing, actually, that showed me that there is another way of framing questions of influence. We can ask instead, what is there in the work of a scholar of another generation that addresses the life of his, in this case, academic discipline as it, as it developed after him? In other words, what speaks out of this work urgently and critically to the present? What speaks out of his work urgently and critically to the present? What questions of his can trouble our times and our work? I think the answer to these questions begins in the resolutely democratic commitment of Caps' method, the democratic impulse and ethics of his inquiry. But there is a further question, or another way of asking this one, it is this. What is illuminated in the present life of the discipline when we query it from this other time and with this other set of questions? This can be left open-ended in the spirit of Capps' research, a matter for further discussion perhaps among us today. Along with what he meant when he wrote that the democratic ethos of the revolutionary generation, his generation, and his generation, affirm that this world, too, is of God. Thank you.
1: Charles Gunn, I've, I've known my almost my entire life. Um, when I went to uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1976, Walter knew I was going. And um, he, um, he came down to my office, and um, I remember this very well because he had a piece of paper in his hand. And he, and he said, take this and don't open it until you get to North Carolina. And so I took this little piece of paper, but I, I cheated I got on the airplane because I didn't know what it was, and I took it out of my pocket, and it said, Meet Giles Gunn. That's all it said. And um, so uh, I I went there, and I didn't meet Giles Gunn until, I remember that late at night, Giles? Well, it wasn't so late. It was about 8 o'clock at night. And this Volvo station wagon pulls into this parking lot, and Giles Gunn got out. And uh, he he were wearing boots, I think, cowboy boots or something like that. Um, And uh, I was so delighted to meet uh, Giles Gunn because I had heard so much about him. He began his career at the University of Chicago in a very, very important time period of our discipline. Um, uh, I had the great fortune of um, following his career, and then, of course, um, he came to UCSB. Uh, and since the middle of the 1980s, um, I have enjoyed his um, his scholarship. Uh, we've taught together. Um, I'll never forget the lectures that he presented in a course that we taught on Joseph Conrad. There are a lot of great interpreters of Joseph Conrad, but Giles Gunn is one of the best. Um, he also has... Uh, abiding a interest in Herman Melville. Um, indeed, one of his books is entitled *A Historical Guide to Herman Melville. Um, he has published extensively many, many articles, many, many uh, chapters, many, many essays, and, of course, many books among them, New World Metaphysics and The Religious Inter- uh, Interpretation of American Writing, the bible and american arts and letters the culture of criticism and the the criticism of culture uh, pragmatism and difference in a globalized world and I'll just pause here because Giles is one of the I think influential humanists uh, with an abiding interest who has looked at um, the implications of globalization And and as you know Giles is the chair of our um, uh, uh, Global and International Studies program Um, and I personally think that um, its strength is a great credit to uh, his uh, management of that program. He of course has authored other books including The Interpretation of Otherness Literature, Religion, and the American Imagination or thinking across the American grain, ideology, intellect, and the new American pragmatism. Um, so Giles Gunn is a very, very interesting person, but he also knew Walter Caps across the entirety of his career. And I wanted to have Giles present the last paper because I thought that Giles would be able to put Walter's uh, work and his contributions not only in the past but also in the present. And I was correct, I think, because Giles' presentation is entitled The Place of Culture in the Play of International Politics. What Would Walter Think? Please welcome Giles Gunn.
0: Well, like others who have found themselves standing before this podium, and and an audience such as all of you come here to celebrate the things that Walter Capps has produced for us and left us with, Uh, I feel privileged and overawed. Um, uh, He was indeed a dear and uh, loving friend of mine. He was, as well, a deeply, deeply admired colleague. But I'd want to go on to say that in the course of being here for the last two days, I've learned so much more about him than I knew from the way so many of you have talked so eloquently about him. Uh, it's, really, it's really wonderful to see how a person unfolds uh, in the better or best thinking of people who are so attentive to what he not only meant but tried to mean and do. I want to note one other thing, however, um, which is that much of our discussion to, uh, in the last two days has been about what we've sort of called Walter's legacy, uh, and the person who I think is most responsible for keeping that legacy alive and transforming it most radically is actually sitting in this room. It is Congresswoman Lois Caps who uh, not only helped to shape the formation of that legacy, listening to drafts, talking questions over through a long marriage with her husband, uh, but then found herself uh, suddenly faced with a momentous decision at an absolutely catastrophic moment when Walter died and Lois had exactly 36 hours to decide whether or not to pick up his work in Congress and move forward. She, of course, did that at the risk of, uh, in fact, uh, what foreclosing the possibility uh, which was our luxury of actually mourning, mourning uh, Walter's loss. She had to pick, pick things up and carry forward his work. And she's done this in ways that, uh, for all of us who are close to Walter, have astonished us in two different ways. One, because she's done it with such absolutely marvelous distinction and is one of the great valued members of Congress now. Um, But to many of us, uh, we have chuckled uh, with her as well as uh, beside her in saying she's done it in ways probably Walter couldn't possibly have managed. Uh, Given his great gifts, he would have taken things in a slightly different direction. In any case, what she's proved to all of us is that legacies are multiform in character and legacies are live organisms. And she has given new life uh, and new direction to much of what we've been talking about today. I'm going to try to be doing something that's a little odd, but thanks to Robert Orsi, it won't sound so odd. That is, I'm going to try to think about uh, ways in which Walter's work uh, might have moved forward had he been faced with some of the situations that have confronted us in the years since his passing. Had Walter lived another decade, I think he would have found himself, like the rest of us, compelled to think in ever-widening circles of global reference. Whether or not, as some maintain and I shall later explore, the world changed on let's say 9-11, 2001, more of its people than ever before began to feel that the world was now with us, so the saying goes, as never before. But the world people now felt so much more pressing was not the one with which they had long been familiar. In the place of various unities and large coherences reinforced by, among other things in the United States, the Cold War, people now experienced what Clifford Goertz has referred to as a world in pieces. Threatened on the one side by the so-called global or worldwide and on the other by the so-called local or regional, And while both the local and the global are in fact relative terms, the felt opposition between them is not so much between the local and the international or worldwide as between one kind of local that is more regional and specific and another that is more global and dispersed. Walter's work, in fact, as we've been now told for two days, combined a good deal of both. As a historian and interpreter of religion, he spent much of his life attempting to study and map components of the global. As a student and critic of American faith and politics, he was immersed particularly in his later life in comprehending several versions of what might be called the local. But it was particularly, I think, in his teaching that these two dimensions of his life and work confronted one another so dramatically, Uh, not just in the famous Vietnam class, where, to put it one way, the internationalized global and the nationalized local were compelled, in connection with experiences of loss, shame, and violence, of mourning and reconciliation, to become answerable to one another. But also, in his less heralded, but no less daring course, as Richard pointed out, on voices of the stranger, in which he explored what, in Jewish and Christian language, is known as the theory of the neighbor. What held both of these classes together, even if he might not have put it this way, was Walter's absorption with the place of culture and cultural others in the play of politics, both national and transnational. As ardent a student of Tocqueville, as Walter was, he knew as few public intellectuals and officials that politics is cultural through and through, just as he understood so much more clearly than most students of the humanities and fine arts that culture is all about hierarchies of value and power. In the time that remains, and at the risk of utilizing some terms for this discussion that Walter might not have employed to uh, think about these very issues, I'd like to try to undertake a kind of experiment. In behalf of thinking forward, to borrow a perfectly nice phrase that the American military and defense establishments have cannibalized for their own purposes— I'd like to explore what Walter, might made, what, what Walter might made of the way cultural talk has infiltrated international politics, and particularly politics concerned since the first Gulf War, but now radically ramped up during the second with the reshaping of world order and America's responsibility for it. The question I'm specifically keen to ask is what Walter would have had to teach us about the place of culture and cultural others in the play of international politics from his experiences in the Vietnam and Stranger Courses. What may he have fathomed about the neighbor who represents the other without and the other within that we now desperately need to know? Let me begin by observing that in certain precincts of the American Academy associated with the social sciences and the humanities, there remains considerable skepticism about, if not resistance to, the idea that cultural assumptions, principles, and aspirations have played an often determinative role in international affairs. Not that anyone has considered international affairs immune to the influence of ideological conflict and symbolic inflation, but only that the conventional orthodoxy in international relations has tended either to downplay the effect of such factors or more likely to presume that the best way of understanding their importance is by determining how they have been expressed within the terms and constraints of the state system. In much of the scholarship devoted specifically to, to the study of international relations, culture talk has often been held to be, at worst, a diversion or distraction, uh, at, at, uh, at, at best, rather, at worst, a distortion or even delusion. And given some of its current, uh, recurrent exaggerations, one can rather easily see why. It is scarcely necessary to cite the notoriety of something like Huntington's clash thesis, much less the more widespread obsession in the United States and elsewhere with culture wars, to realize that the term culture has been susceptible to misrepresentation and deformation as much as the world word politics. Where culture is held to explain everything, religion included, it illumines almost nothing. And yet the cultural component has worked its way back into the discourse of international politics, not simply now as a necessary way of accounting for the temper, tension, and force of particular policies and practices, but also as a way of comprehending the political itself. One can no more divorce political interests from cultural prejudices than one can separate the history of institutions, diplomacy, and war from the history of consciousness. Such elemental linkages have, of course, long been acknowledged in the writings of everyone from Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Karl Marx, to Max Weber, Hannah Arendt, Karl Polanyi, Immanuel Wallerstein, but they've been given new applications in the work of countless others, among them people like Judith Sklar, Robert Cox, and now, of course, Samantha Powers. Culture in their work is not simply a toolkit, but as it was in Walters, a template, a blueprint and roadmap for how people think and act, and above all, interpret their world to themselves and to others. In this sense, cultural systems as they operate in the international sphere are neither simply framed nor, deliberate, nor delimited by politics. As Edmund Burke knew, as well as Antonio Gramsci, not to say Saeed Khatoub, They generate the emotional and cognitive weather, of which, at various levels, politics is both the consequence and sometimes, but not too often, the corrective. This realization has become increasingly self-evident since the end of the Cold War, which caught so many students of global politics by surprise. Itself a battle between ideological mindsets and their many variations, projected onto the field of superpower rivalry, The end of the Cold War suddenly revealed many international structures to be ineffective and outworn, others, in fact, to be surprisingly resilient, and everyone scrambling to define the different ordering of the world that might take its place. James Rossineau spoke for many when he suggested that the Cold War now appeared, quote, more a collage of perceptions than a confrontation of powers, more a shadow play than a stark drama. If, as he continued, and I now continue the quote, weapons build-ups and arms races were perpetuated more by unwarranted perceptions and distorted intelligence reports than by actual plans for military offenses, one was now compelled to realize, he goes on, how fully the course of events were fictions of convergent imaginations, of intersubjectivities rather than objective conditions, end quote. The language here is telling. The Cold War not only turns out to have been represented by figurative forms, but also in some profound sense to have been indeed fictive in its conduct. The perception merely underlines what international relations scholars, like members of the informed public generally, have now relearned from the current war in Iraq. Global politics are threaded with cultural assumptions that profoundly affect not only how we conceive of others and enact our relations with them, but also how, as a consequence, we imagine that the world should be reshaped. Constructing images of world order and models of global governance is not an exercise reserved for the select few. It is rather rooted in what might be called the telos of culture itself, which tends to make imperialists of us all. And nowhere is, of course, this more obvious than in the United States, as Walter knew so well. The genealogy of America's own imperial destiny goes back, as we know, to a time long before there was a nation or people. It begins, one could argue, with the Pequot War of 1637 and includes the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 48, and according to some interpretations, at least by Southerners, the Civil War of 1861 to 65. But conventional histories of American adventurism instead usually associate its origins, if mistakenly, with the Spanish-American War. of of 1898. Itself, a fairly naked grab for territory and trade in the Caribbean and the Pacific, the Spanish-American War drew some of its sharpest criticism from, as a matter of fact, America's then most internationally renowned author. Writing in the New York Herald on October 15, 1900, Mark Twain's response was characteristically prescient. I left these shores at Vancouver a red-hot imperialist, I wanted the American eagle to go screaming into the Pacific. It seemed tiresome and tame for it to content itself with the Rockies. Why not spread its wings over the Philippines, I asked myself. And I said to myself, here are a people who have suffered for these three centuries. We can make them as free as ourselves, give them a government and country of their own, put a miniature of the American Constitution afloat in the Pacific, start a brand new republic to take its place among the free nations of the world. It seemed to me a great task to which we had addressed ourselves. But I have thought some more since then, concludes Twain, and I have read carefully the Treaty of Paris, and I have seen that we do not intend to be free, we do not intend them to be free, but to subjugate the people of the Philippines. It should, it seems to me, be our pleasure and duty to make those people free and let them deal with their own domestic questions in their own way. And so now I am an anti-imperialist, I am opposed to having the eagle put its talons on any other land. Others, however, like President William McKinley, saw this preemptive move rather differently. Insistent that the Philippine people could not be left to themselves, as they were, as he put it, unfit for self-government, and would soon have anarchy and misrule over there worse than Spain's was, McKinley uh, was incredulous and outraged, as well as ungrammatical, in saying that detractors, presumably like Mark Train, Could challenge the virtue, capacity, high purpose, and good faith which qualified this free people as a civilizing agency. Believing, indeed, that a century and more of free government had uniquely qualified the people of the United States for the great task of lifting up and assisting to better conditions and large liberty those distant peoples who, through the issue of battle, have become our wards, McKinley, like so many of his imperialist kinsmen throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, embraced uh, colonialism as a moral challenge." and Walter would, of course, been uh, extraordinarily critical of this very move, believing, with Lionel Trilling, that there is no greater moral danger than the process by which, as Trilling once put it, when, one, when once we have made our fellow men the objects of our enlightened interest, we go on to make them first the objects of our pity, then of our wisdom, and ultimately of our coercion. There's nevertheless, as most of you know, Uh, and Walter would have been very interested in this, another school of thought, now most vigorously defended by the British historian Niall Ferguson, which suggests that America has long been an imperial power and shouldn't be ashamed of admitting it. America's centrality to the stability and well-being of international order has been an accepted truth for well over a century. Ferguson contends, and now in the face of what Thomas E. Hicks has described as the, quote, fiasco of the American military adventure in Iraq uh, and the threatened destabilization of the entire Middle East, The United States, he continues, cannot allow its reluctance to be perceived as an empire to prevent it from fulfilling its global responsibilities. The only issue, so say the defenders of a sometimes too hesitant American imperialism, is how to do it better. The most recent challenge to the international order and global governance, so many believe, comes from the attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon on on September 11th. Those attacks, which were perceived by the American administration, and a large percentage of the American people as assaults not just on the United States itself, but on some supports of the world system itself, set in motion a massive, far-reaching counter-response whose purpose, we don't need to be told, was not only to preserve world order as it was constructed on September 10, 2001, but to change it. One can speculate about whether Al-Qaeda actually believed that its targeting of some of the symbolic foundations of world order could be so successful, much less foresee the reaction that those uh, attacks would subsequently generate. But there's little doubt that the counteraction they produced by the so-called coalition of the willing led to consequences that were the very opposite of its, its intention. Actions taken by the U.S., as we know, and its allies have thus far succeeded not in strengthening world order, but in further endangering it, at once destabilizing the Middle East, bringing new and terrible suffering to millions of people, and discrediting the United States' for at least a generation. The paradox, of course, obvious to almost everyone, but but reducing its global meaning, the paradox is, of course, obvious to almost everyone, but to reduce its its global meaning to the self-contradiction of failed American policies misses the role that cultural forms played in producing it. It effaces the way the symbolic in our so-called postmodern world has taken over much of the definition of the real, by compelling us to see the real through images of itself. This is not to claim that simulacra, as Richard Rorty might have put it, necessarily go all the way down, but it is to suggest that the terror of which 9-11 was the expression and the terror it unleashed cannot be comprehended without understanding their function as cultural representations of a very special sort. On 9-11, it is often said, life was rendered as spectacle, as cinema, as theater, as horror film, indeed, as the movie The Towering Inferno. But this gets only half of it. The larger truth is that this, as Walter would have understood, is that this simulation of the real was actually shadowed by the reality of which it was a copy. A specter turned corporeal, palpable, personal, catastrophic, deadly, and almost, but not quite, inconceivable. What made the event so frightening is that the Baudrillardian hyperreal had suddenly been transformed into a kind of global surreal, where the terror of the symbolic made real almost overwhelmed itself. Yet this transformation was possible only because terror itself, as Richard Falk has pointed out, had been elevated to a new mega level, where the symbolic as well as substantial harm it was intended to inflict was meant to, uh, to, to equal or surpass the kinds of social injury once associated with large-scale military attacks by state actors, and the assailant now was something other than a nation-state itself. Megaterrorism, as Falk calls this newest form of violence, operates outside the legal framework of states, thus remaining to a certain extent invisible, or only partially so, indiscriminately targets entire populations and measures success chiefly in terms of the destabilization caused both by the fear it inspires and the overwhelming symbolic uh, defensive counteraction it is intended both to create as a strategy and a statement. Yet if it weren't for the fact that the atrocities of 9-11 were played out on what was perceived to be the world as opposed to the national stage, their meaning, which was communicated through the image as well as the performance of their special horrors, could not have been understood to menace as indeed they did, the conception of the world itself. 9-11 changed the rules and stratagems of war by seeking to place the structural supports of world order itself under assault. Though the attacks of 9-11 did not like Oms Shimrikyo's sarin gas attack in the Tokyo subway system rely on weapons of mass destruction, uh, the psychological abyss they opened was experienced as potentially just as bottomless. It was the abyss exposed when terror becomes more than a violent tactic of intimidation and coercion and is converted into a technology devoted to disrupting, in truth destabling, mentality itself and the effective circuits that make it work. Far from merely shocking the mind, megaterror seeks to enfeeble it, and with that enfeeblement is is threatened the possibility of imagining much of any future at all beyond the present of its own ravages. The late Jacques Derrida took this cultural analysis uh, still further and in a form I think Walter would have appreciated. Arguing, given the fact that, as David pointed out, Walter loved the whole idea of contrarieties and what they pick up and carry forward as they move ahead. Arguing that 9-11 became uniquely lethal because of the perverse marriage of its symbolic and autoimmunitary effects. Operating like an organism seeking to protect itself from a perceived threat by suicidally destroying its own system of defense, 9-11 actually succeeded in producing aspects of the very evil it was seeking to resist. This was disclosed first when the United States found itself on 9-11 being attacked, as it were, from within by militants associated none too distantly from the forces it had itself helped to train and supply to fight the Soviet Union before the end of the Cold War. Moreover, that earlier training of the Mujah- Mujahideen, President Reagan held them as freedom fighters, in Afghanistan not only created many of the conditions that supported the development of al-Qaeda, but may have in turn helped focus al-Qaeda's interest in targeting two of the most potent symbolic expressions of American imperial might. Second, this auto-immunitary logic enabled 9-11 to acquire the status of a calamity worse than the Cold War itself by threatening Americans and others with the loss of something less tangible, something almost more irreplaceable than the world of institutions and structures and even individual lives that were preserved for more than 40 years by the nuclear balance of terror. What was put at risk by this autoimmunitary logic was, as Derrida described it, quote, nothing less than the existence of the world and the worldwide itself. That process, in other words, by turns legal, religious, economic, linguistic, ethical, through which we seek to extend the world's meaning as well as materiality, by bringing ever-widening spheres of experience
3: like this. Say they were at happiness level six okay, in their life, about, about that, that amount of happiness and life satisfaction. They have this huge windfall. Something really wonderful happens, amazing, unexpected. Their happiness right after that goes way up to about a nine. A year later, when you look at how happy these people are reporting, how satisfied they are with their life, it's lower than it was initially, than where they started. So they don't just go back to where they were. They actually go lower. Most people go lower. They're less happy. And if you've ever heard um, people talk about people who have who've won a lottery or come into a huge windfill and you've heard, sometimes they'll talk, interviewed, they're interviewed on TV, and you hear them. Um, one of the things people will often talk about is um, how their expectations change. All my problems will be solved, right? my relationship and and we do that in relationships don't we well once we whatever once the kids are once we have kids or then once the kids are raised out of the house or once we get the house paid off or once I finish my graduate degree or um, once you finish your internship and you're in a more stable work situation or once we move here, or once we move there, or closer to family, or away. Once something happens, then we'll be happy. Then our relationship will be good. Then it'll, we'll be able to really enjoy, right? And it doesn't happen. And their expectation that it's going to be so different actually leads many people to feel less satisfied than they had been before. And so what happens in relationships is we bring into a relationship certain expectations. And uh, and and most of us are not even aware. I don't know that you consciously were aware of that. You're probably just like, of course, that's the way it is. Um, I had a, a couple I was working with once, and they came in. They were in a crisis. I'd seen them a few times. They came into a session, total crisis. This is what the crisis was about. It was so, I mean, it's just interesting what, you know, what gets people's attention. And the crisis was about it. It was uh, had been Halloween the week before. And they were newly married, and um, she had gone out, and she had gotten all these pumpkins and these carving knives, and she had all this stuff when her husband came home. She had everything set out, you know, the newspapers on the table with the pumpkins and the carving knives, and, and then she had the, the cookie pans out to, co- to roast, to toast, or whatever you do with the pumpkin seeds, right? You put them in the oven. And she was so excited that they were, it was their first Halloween together. Right? She was so excited that. This was going to be this fun, quality time together. And he walks in the house, and she says, Look what I did. And he goes, Oh, I hate to carve pumpkins. They're all slimy. I don't want to do it. You go ahead, right? This was their crisis. And it's, it's, it's easy for to look at that and say, Oh, isn't that silly? Or, you know, of course that happened. But we all do that. We all come with expectations that we put on the other person, sometimes not even realizing that we're doing it. Um, and then we're disappointed, and then we're disappointed. So it's not that we don't want to have expectations, but we need to be clear on them, and where do they come from, right? A lot of them come from our own families. So we come with expect When we get into a relationship with somebody, we come with, with certain expectations that, you know, this is the way a family works, based on how we were raised, perhaps, or maybe we're looking for the opposite of how we were raised. Well, when I have my family, we're going to do it this way because... You know, we didn't have that in my family. My husband is a widower. He was married for 35 years to to one person, right? So he has a model in his head of what marriage is that's based on that marriage, right, and not our marriage. And so that initially was a real transition for him because it was like, well, this is what you do in a marriage. You know, in his mind, this is what marriage is. And I keep saying no. That was that marriage, not this marriage. But it's about those expectations and what we come in with, you know. And I'm thinking, I'm expecting. Well, you know, um, I'm already. We're already into our careers. We already have adult children. I have a grandchild. Another one on the way, you know. So my expectation is, oh, he's going to be come right in and become grandpa, right, to my little grandchild. Well, he has done that. But that was my expectation. Of course he's going to love being grandpa, right? And he's kind of going, oh, I don't know. You know, I haven't been around little kids for a long time. So part of that is in terms of really that first one, admitting. It's being able to say, you know what? I realize I have certain expectations here that I'm putting on you. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Well, you came to that awareness yourself. That's really good. Second one, so important. Take the initiative to, to create change, even if. And so what is the even F? OK, well, I hear this often when I, when I work with couples. Um, and it, it'll go some version of, well, I would do this if my partner did something first. I'm waiting for them. Or I did this, you know, I brought home a flowers last week and then nothing happened, so I'm not going to do anything more. It's like, I, I think a lot of us have this sort of scorecard in our mind. It's like, I've done my 50%. Right now it's their turn to, to do something. The problem is that I am so aware of everything I've done, right, all the things I've done, all the efforts I've done, that my 50% may look like 20% to my partner. So, what I like to think about and, and talk about with people is think about that your share is at least 80%. At least 80%, maybe 100, but let's say at least 80%. So, if both of you are contributing at a level of about 80%, Hopefully, there's going to be some overlap there. And hopefully, it's going to feel kind of in balance, right? But the taking the initiative to create change, even if, doing what I can because, and you said it so well, I realized I couldn't change anybody. I couldn't change my partner. So what can I do to make things better? What can I do? Say the, the three little words, words often, and probably those should be reversed, because I am sorry is probably just as important, not more so I love you, and I will maybe add one there, and I appreciate, this is longer than three words, but, and I appreciate you, and fill in the blank. I am sorry that I da-da-da-da. I love you, and the third one, I appreciate you, for whatever. I, and how often is, I was working with a group of managers one time, and we were talking about, you know, those positive. Reinforcements for um, for their for employees, and one manager raised her hand and she said, "Well, how often do I have to do that? Right? How often do I have to?" Sometimes people will ask that same question, about well, how often do I have? To? I told her I loved her when we got married. Isn't that enough? My goodness, did she forget already? It's, I, it's some things you can't do too often, right? Some things you can't do too often. So if you haven't said it lately, maybe it's time. Both of them. Laugh together, humor together. Laughing together is such a wonderful activity. It releases all kinds of great chemicals in our bodies. It gets our energy flowing. It gets our blood flowing. Laughing together. Doing something silly together gets you laughing. When's the last time you did something silly? Maybe you learned something new together. Maybe you went out and played miniature golf or learned how to kayak or just something silly, something different. Participating in physical activities together is a wonderful activity to do together. We recently learned how to ballroom dance. Well, I shouldn't say that. We recently tried to learn how to ballroom dance, right? <laughs> I'm still working one, two, three, you know, the foxtrot. But it was great fun because we were both learning something we didn't know how to do and we were learning it together. And so we could just be silly with it. Um, Search for the positive in each other. So easy to, again, that, that remember that interaction. Five positives at least to every negative. Practice random acts of kindness. The unexpected, doing the unexpected. And we've talked a lot about making time together a priority. Making time together a priority. Setting aside that time of letting your partner know you're important to me. You're important because I'm probably one of our most valuable commodities. So I'm noticing the time, and I did want to leave a little bit of time for some questions. So we do have a few minutes here. Um, so anybody have any questions or, or observations or thoughts that you want to share? Love to hear them. Yes. Yes. Can you repeat the question too? Okay. You're not really and the understanding people might care about something that's going on, but depending on what I'm just looking. Okay. Okay. Let me safe to do that. Yeah. Well, I don't know your family, so it may or may not be. Let me repeat the question, make sure I have it and also for the um the the uh audio here. Um so what you're asking is how do you respectfully uh, tell family to back off when they're interfering, right? Okay, good question. And and I think um, clearly you want to do it in a way that's respectful and that's kind. Um, but it sounds like what's behind your question is maybe a sense that, that some extended family uh, are, are kind of interfering in your business with your partner, yeah. Uh, a couple of things I would say about that. Uh, one is, I think you can say it in a respectful way, and, that, and, and it starts with acknowledging the concern and the caring that's behind that. So something like, I really appreciate your concern for us. You know, we, even better, we really appreciate your concern for us. That means a lot to us. And I just want you to know that we're doing fine. And, you know, if they knew, perhaps they know there's some issue that you're dealing with, and we're working on, you know, we're working things out. You know, if they know there's something. So the first part starts with acknowledging the intention, which is to try to help. And the problem, and I think you kind of alluded to this, is that when family gets involved, it usually ends up not being helpful. So the other side of that, too, is to be really cautious and careful about when there is tension or or conflict in a relationship of not going to them. Because it's very tempting to do that. You go there because you know you're going to get support and they're going to be on your side and you get all this wonderful, compassionate listening. And then you go back to your partner and your partner and you work it out. But your family member were not part of that working out process, right? And so they're still left with hearing all of these things about their your partner. And, of course, they, they care about you and they want to protect you. And so that is the situation that I find most often comes... Uh, in interferes in a relationship is when, at times of conflict, when somebody goes to a family member or to a, a good friend. And of course, we want to do that, but I think it's really important to leave tho- those things within the relationship. Okay, did that address what you were asking?
0: Okay. When you important
1: to
3: In general, in general, now certainly, if it's a situation where there are safety concerns, where there, you know, um, is violence or aggression in a relationship, that's a. I'm not talking about those kinds of relationships. I'm talking about a relationship that's basically, you know, with a good person, but you're having conflict. Um, but certainly, if there are safety issues or, or you know, it's major kinds of deal, issues like that, like aggression in a relationship, you you probably do need to go outside and get help and support. But be careful about going for every little thing because you know you're going to get the understanding. It's like, oh my gosh, oh he did that, I can't believe he did that to you. And then that turns them against your partner. Alright, so cautious of that. Um, Rosa, you had your hand up, did you have a question? I liked uh, your, uh, your term, a courageous contributor. Contra- con- courageous conversation, oh, yeah. Um, but or, just being mm-hmm. courageous a relationship uh, and by by being the one to say, you know, I think I made a mistake. I think you were right, something like that. And how courageous that is and how it starts an upward spiral. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how hard that is to do. I it know. is so hard to do. Oh okay. It is <laughs> it is so hard to do but so important to do. And I think one last thing with that, that, that I always want to put in when I talk about relationships, because I hear a lot of people come to me and say, my partner doesn't understand me, my partner doesn't listen to me, All right, we all felt that way sometimes. Very, very simple way to get your partner to listen to you. Anybody know what that is? Simple, really simple. You can start doing it today when you get walked out of this room, whether it's in a work situation or a personal relationship or family relationship. Easiest way to get somebody to listen to you is to listen to them, to their point of view, until they feel completely understood. When they feel completely understood, that's when they're ready to listen to you. That's when they're ready. So a really good phrase to use is if your partner's talking about something, because when that happens, right, what do we want to do? We're listening to them talk. We're rehearsing in our mind what we're going to say to convince them how wrong they are, right? So very simple thing to do is you just listen, and then when you think they're finished and you're ready to put your 2 cents in there or 4 cents, you say, do you feel like I'm understanding you enough? Do you feel understood? Do you feel like I'm understanding you enough? And that's not, okay, I heard you, I heard you, I understand. No, it's do you feel that I'm understanding you enough? Then that's when they're ready to listen. So powerful, powerful tool to use at home or at work. Listening for complete understanding until they feel understood. Not until you think you understand them, until they feel understood. They're the ones who determine that. Okay. I see our time is up. Do we have time for one last question or comment? One last.
2: Religion and sharing of faith
3: and in one okay. So, question has to do with about sharing, sharing a religious faith, and uh, the role that that plays. Um, I, I'm sure there have been studies done on that. I, I'm not. I don't have the statistics on that at hand. Um, I think that, from what I've seen, um, is and, and what I've read, that the biggest challenge with that comes when there are children. So, what I find is often people will marry of, of different faiths, and they'll think, "Well, that's fine. He can practice his religion. I'll practice mine. We respect each other. No problem." And then, when kids come along, or if kids come along, all of a sudden it's a different matter. It's like, "Ah, oh, well, wait a minute." And and what I hear sometimes people will say is, "Well, my partner, you know, they don't they don't even go to services. They never even go to services anyway. They never even observe their religious." you know, observances, so I don't think it'll be a problem. When kids come along, people's religion gets a whole lot more important often. So the, the best predictor of success in, when there are dif- that, that kind of a difference, which is a very significant difference, is that you need to be talking about it. And talking about, how are we going to do this?